So 13 weeks later, we just finished Revelation. Thanks for hanging in there, guys. You can give yourselves a round of applause. Yeah. Here we come to an end or the end. It's a garden city coming down. And, and today we're going to focus kind of on the first uh, four or five verses. Um, we included the whole reading because I, I did want us to get to the end. And also whenever there's a warning to not exclude any scripture or you'll get cursed, you should probably read that out loud, right? But today we come to the end. This is the, the garden city coming down and it's endless life from the throne of God and the Lamb overflowing as a river right down Main Street. Like I, I imagine when this has happened, some of the people who have lived there for a while being like, do you know what used to happen on Main Street? There never used to be anyone on Main Street. And now there's a river in a water feature flowing on Main Street, right? Of course, where there's water, there are also trees. And in this case, there is the tree. It bears fruit in season, and it has these magical leaves that act as healing balm for all of the nations. I'm reminded of Jesus' parable of the mustard seed. Do we remember that? Where something small and seemingly insignificant surprisingly grows into a place of shade and shelter and safety and healing and sustenance. It's a place where there's room for the biggest and the littlest to dwell together in safety. And I think that's what's happening here. This is the new creation, and it's a place where all the usual things that we rely on, like the sun that gives us light and warmth and the moon that sets the tides, they're going to be replaced. Really, they're going to be fulfilled by the light of God's presence and by the gravity of God's grace. This is what the kingdom is like. This is what it means for Jesus to be in charge. This is, as our chapter today said, quote, trustworthy and true. I always find myself, when I get into these passages, I kind of tear up a little, because I, I think these last two chapters are exceedingly beautiful, and there's amazing music written uh, about these, some of which we sang this morning. I almost just wanted to not preach after some of these songs that we sang today. But also, <laughs> right? But also, I, I tear up a little because these visions seem really far away. I think it's particularly upsetting to see how we're apparently not getting all that much closer to making these things happen to ourselves. Like even like the ecological uh, focus in this passage, like our waterways are increasingly filthy by our own making. Uh, you can talk to Elizabeth Christensen. She literally has a PhD about how we make our water bad, right? Or like the sun, right? The sun is ever-threatening to us because we're reaping some of the fruit of greed and stubbornness, and it yields these massive ecological disasters that really hurt the least of these, not, not the least the earth and our environment, creation. Or you look around at the lands, and the lands are full of strife. Our borders are places of conflict rather than like seams where there could be like fusion and creativity and welcome, right? And, and, and even, you know, all of these scenes in 21 and 22 have, have, highlight the nations, right? 
And, and I look around now and I see our national identities and our, even our regional identities as sources of, they could be sources of wealth and health and beauty and instead they're like competition and pride and shame in a world that seems like there isn't enough so we need to make sure we grab from someone else so that we might have more than them. Like our best efforts seem to be getting us further away from this picture, this goal. So I want to propose that instead of working forwards to the goal, perhaps we need to work backwards from the goal, from this beautiful picture in Revelation 21 and 22, that, that we need to work backwards. And that, that might be a little counterintuitive. I, I think of the T.S. Eliot line from Little Gidding, where he says, the end is where we start from. And some people are like nodding their head like I'm with that T.S. Eliot. Some like type A people who are not really into poetry are like, you got to give me something, right? And so this also happens to be habit number two from Stephen Covey's Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. Start with the end in mind, right? That's, that's what we're doing here. I'm trying to be all things to all people here. Uh, sorry. The caveat though, if you're doing highly effective if you're trying to become a highly effective person, there are no guarantees that doing this will make you a quote-unquote highly effective person um, in the ways that you're probably thinking that it will. It might, though, if we're beginning with Revelation's end in mind, tap us into the ends and the means of the kingdom of God. I think this is pretty important for us. Because Revelation's end, to recap some of our major themes that we've been talking about a lot, involves war and worship and bodies. This war is one that is happening right this second. Like, here but not only here. It's a cosmic conflict that is not exclusively between flesh and blood, but it's against, as Ephesians says, rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Don't get me wrong, of course, bodies are getting hurt by bodies left and right. Immigrant families in Mississippi are being hurt, their bodies, by ice raids, and Michael Brown's body was broken five years and a couple days ago. Revelation isn't mum to these realities. There's a whole entourage of martyrs waiting under the altar, lamenting and screaming how long, and they're bearing witness. The, the fact that they are martyrs means that they are witnesses. They're looking for vindication, and their struggle and their initial defeat was certainly on their flesh and in their blood. But the apocalypse unveils that that's not all that's going on. Their struggle, our struggle, is with more than flesh and blood. And this is meant to encourage us, not to discourage us, Gail. Like, there are indeed, quote, dark psychic forces at play in all these things, demonic powers that loom larger than individual players. This is why Revelation doesn't, um, neither backs down from offering cutting critique, but it also doesn't name names very often. It's really strange. John is seeing and experiencing real suffering and exile to Patmos at the hands of Rome, but he never names Rome as the main problem. It's always things like Satan and the dragon and Babylon and false prophets, etc. These people, places, and things are kind of like fill in the blanks. Like, um, 
uh, I, uh, riffing off of one of the things that Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you. He, he might as well have said Babylon you'll always have with you. You know, that sort of thing. And this is, this is how this kind of works for us. For us, working backwards, though, this should give us some assurance and peace along with the wisdom to discern and to resist. Even if all this feels new, it's not. It's just the latest iteration in like a fake, powerful regime doing everything it can to steal, kill, and destroy around us. But working backwards gives us this key insight. It allows us to over and over again fix our eyes on Jesus, who shows us what power looks like when we get distracted. That, that our world wants to tell us that power uh, does everything it can to get in charge, but Jesus, when we look at Jesus, we see that sacrifice and suffering, not fear, scarcity, and violence. Working backwards will help us pray and work. Like, not just pray, but pray and work. Urgently in our now. Rather than, like, casting off these things for some future time. In the same way that the war is happening now, our worship is happening now. It must continue as a response. Romans 12 talks about this and it reminds us that we're supposed to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And that might be familiar to you, that phrase. But I love how this sentence, it's kind of sneaky because it moves from plural to singular. It says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is a bold and telling move. It means in the words of the message, your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life can and should be brought into this revelation reality of saints throwing themselves down before God so that the Lamb might lift up our heads. It means that we all together bring our bodies, some strong, some weak, some flabby, some skinny, some old, some young, some broken, and we bring our bodies and we bring them together inside of Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' broken body, that we might become a living sacrifice. That we might live and move and have our being in this mode that is stronger than sin and fear and shame and death. That the songs that come out of our mouths might be praise aimed at the Lamb. Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And to him who sits on the throne, to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. It's a mouthful. And all of those little descriptors should serve to redefine and reconfigure what we think about all these things. What we think about power, what we think about wealth. Jesus doesn't just get these things because he's done something really hard. He, he is these things and deserves these things. This should change our minds. The other part of that, Romans 12, is to renew us by the transformation of our minds. So I want to finish our series today with kind of a like series of thought experiments because I think this level of our imagination and our expectation is, is what needs work here and, and also what will drive us towards action, not just thinking. Revelation concludes with this wonderful vision of hope, healing, and hospitality. Those are words we use around here at Oak Church. And, I, and as you'll see, I think Isaiah's vision and John's vision really mesh and are kind of hand in glove. 
Again, that's the end that we start from. And as we've learned, Revelation is hardly ever presenting new information. Almost everything that, ha that is happening in John's vision is something that was previously put forth. Revelation is God's faithful answer to God's promises. And there's been a lot of expectation built up. And John is bringing all of these stories into one narration. So the thought experiment I want to end with, and that I hope you'll continue on, um, is trying to think around what the nature of this grand healing is like. We, we often hope for that. Uh, even as we sing songs like, um, like uh, they'll know we are Christians and we pray for unity, we hope for these things, but uh, when it comes down to it, we, we often have really thin imaginations for how that might work. We're, we're often still stuck in binary modes of winning and losing or right and wrong rather than uh, what it might mean to participate in God's healing, to be unified, what it might cost us and what we might gain from it. So I want to think about what the nature of this healing is like, to imagine this well in light of what we've seen and what we've heard, but also in light of the wounds that we see and we feel around us to help us work backwards. Like take, for instance, like the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 2. Many of you know uh, this scripture. Uh, I, I think I have it up there, Matt. Uh, wake up. Is there Isaiah 2 up there? Yeah, cool. It says, this is what Isaiah, Amos' son, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of mountains. It will be lifted above the hills. People will stream to it. This is what we're reading in Revelation 21 and 22. Many nations will go and say, come, let's go up to the Lord's mountain and to the house of Jacob's God. So he may teach us his ways and we may walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion, the Lord's word from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. Then they will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation, and they will no longer learn how to make war. This appears to be fulfilled in Revelation. But in the week following the shootings in El Paso and Dayton, it seems nearly impossible that weapons of war might ever be conclusively melted down into tractors. Like, can we even really imagine that happening? We don't even have good language for this. Consider how often you've heard the word weaponize. What is what? Does anyone have a working definition of weaponize? Y'all, come on. Weaponize means to take something good or neutral and then, like, mobilize it to hurt someone, right? Like, you can weaponize words. If you're really like emotionally manipulative, you can weaponize emotions. My children can weaponize cherry tomatoes in my house. Like you can, you can take something good and adopt, uh, adapt it to cause harm. It's something that is used for hurt in war. But in the reality of the kingdom of God, these same things whether they started out good or whether they were purely conceived as evil, will be used to cultivate, to grow food, and to produce flourishing. That, like, that is mind-blowing that this is the case. And it feels like we 
if we can't even figure out how it's going to happen, we at least need to get words for it. So I want you to turn to uh, two or three people around you and try to come up with an antonym for weaponize. Like what it might mean to take something bad or evil or violent and then shift it to use towards good. And you can even make up words like plowshareize or something like that would be great. But um, turn to someone, try to figure this out, and, and, and then we're, we'll collect some of these responses. Take like two minutes. Speak loudly and tell me some of the words that are coming up. I'm, I'm just curious. Peaceful eight. I like that. Pacify. Yeah, that's that's more of an actual word. De-weaponize, sure. Defang. Cool. Say it again. Redeem, good. Flourish eyes. Say it again. Beneficiate, cool. We're, we're to happy day. Yeah, 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 cool. I like that. No, these are good. It feels like we need like Scrabble sets at Potluck today to continue some of this momentum. Like, this sort of language, even just the language, let alone the plans for it, will be important for us as we work backwards because it helps us imagine God's future. Um, I think art is also really helpful for this, but not exclusively. Um, but, but art is, is often like operates in this hopeful mode of taking what already exists and making it something new or better or redeemed or happy dayed or uh, peacefulized, right? Like, like think of, um, like I think of uh, in this, this future for the healing of nations will not be a future without scars. Like it might be a future without tears that are are still coming, but it won't be a future without scars of what has been. It won't be a future without a memory. So Revelation gives us a picture of that kind of hard-fought healing, and it makes me think of things like the Japanese art of repair, and I'm going to butcher what it's called, but it's called like Kintsukurai. Do you know this, right? Kintsuki, right? Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, There's a picture. And so they take like a vessel that is broken, and instead of throwing it away, which is what we would do probably, um, instead of starting over, you apply even more precious materials than were used in the first place by a skilled craftsperson, and you bring about something even more valuable and more beautiful than the original thing before there was a brokenness. This is amazing stuff right here. This is like works on our whole imaginations and expectations that healing might not be the void of our scars or the uh, totally forgotten memory of something bad, but it might actually be something completely new that is even more valuable than before. The same sort of kind of, the word word that I came with that after I had way longer to think about this than y'all was to transfigure, um, which like takes something takes the figure of something and makes it new. Um, but I, I think this sort of transfiguring imagination happened also a few weeks back at the Mexican border where some artists and engineers installed this sort of like guerrilla playground. And, and um, they put these big uh, steel um, 
teeter-totters through the slats. And so on one side you had like all these white people teeter-tottering, on the other side you had all these Mexican people teeter-tottering. And initially I was really angered by seeing this because it seems so frivolous. I'm, I'm really tired of these walls and this seems way too cutesy for what I really desire out of them. But the more I consider it, this is a really kind of interesting and beautiful interruption, right? This is, this is an injection of play and peace and grace in the midst of like stalemated environment of animosity and antagonism. And it makes space for the kingdom of God to break in in a place where nothing grows and nothing good happens. It makes space for God's kingdom to break in, for Jesus to be present in dark and small and forgotten spaces. And, and this helps us to see. This helps us to see even now before Jesus breaks in and becomes the light by which everyone sees. This, this is a little spark and a little glimpse of light. We're really blessed to be doing ministry in a neighborhood like this that at the top of our neighborhood, just like walking distance, is the Scrap Exchange. And their whole mission is creative reuse, which is another answer I would have accepted uh, earlier. And, and then at the bottom of the neighborhood is Trosa. And uh, consider the kind of like creativity it takes to help guide men from addiction towards health and healing. Like recovery programs are involved in the literal miracle of making space for people caught in cycles of death to bring them into life. Recovering addicts know better than anyone else that they could and would be dead, but now they are participating in life. It's hard and bumpy and detoured as that journey may be, right? Some of this imagination was also drummed up a few years ago by an encounter that I had with an artist. And I wanna show a short video about this from um, a, a friend, Bruce Herman, um, the story of this, because he didn't really talk much at the beginning, but he was commissioned to do this painting because they said, no one ever paints the resurrection. And, he, and he's a painter and he said, I know why. <laughs> because no one can imagine it well, right? And, and so as part of a project with T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, he was commissioned to, uh, and given the the, the go-ahead to, to make this painting, and it, was, it, it still does hang, and it was to hang in York Reading Room at the Divinity School. It's, it's crazy, no one's even watching it. It's just in there, you can go walk right up to it. And um, you'll see Bruce's process is really brutal. He, he paints, and he makes, and he remakes. He uses like, an, like a mechanical, like an electric sander over hours of painting work that he's done. Um, much of his creation in the middle of things seems like destruction, but the end it brings out these layers of nuance and glory, and this like flat picture doesn't do it any justice. Um, but also in this, uh, why this uh, video is particularly interesting is about nine or so months into his project, he got a phone call from the Divinity School that said, we're doing renovation on the room, and actually all the work that you've been doing needs to be about a third of the size, and it's gotta be a completely different shape. Um, and so you'll see that, and it, it about makes me cry, and hearing Bruce talk about this, uh, he talks about it in the same way he talks about the studio fire that he had uh, a couple decades ago, in which almost all of his paintings before that were demolished in a, in a fire uh, from a lightning strike, right? 
And, and, and so you see in him this, this, this kind of virtue and this cultivated imagination for what it might mean to come out on the other side of tragedy and, and the way that breaking actually can be part of uh, making and remaking. So here's the video. I begin a project um, with drawings, many, many layers. We build up dozens of layers and then sometimes drastically edit in order to arrive at the image that seems to want to come into being, even at the expense of getting rid of months of work. Then I'll cut through wet paint to under layers to try to reveal palimpsests of what was there before. Um, I can be pretty brutal, almost unmaking the very thing I've been making.
built up dozens of layers and then sometimes drastically edit in order to arrive at the image that seems to want to come into being, even at the expense of getting rid of months of work. It can be, I can be pretty brutal, almost unmaking the very thing I've been making. I'm sure we've all felt th this process, maybe even in our bodies at times. It's pretty discouraging. It feels like it's not supposed to be happening and it could in no way serve the end that God wants. I hope some of these thought exper experiments can help us to begin to imagine what it might look like and feel like and to be a part of God's healing. Hopefully it'll help us work backwards from the new creation which is bursting into our sight even now. Whatever your pain or wounding or whatever the pain and wounding around you or whatever ways you're feeling like you're being brutally unmade, Jesus is making all things new. Jesus is making you new. Isaiah 61 says, and this is important to us here, it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of, of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Whatever you've done or whatever you've left undone, that'll be part of our confession together in a minute. Whatever the ways that you've participated in sin and death and violence in this world, Jesus is also making all things new and making you new. You're not only neutralized or dismantled, but you are reconfigured. You are transfigured into something, into someone useful for God's purposes. I look around and I see like plowshares here, right? Useful, helpful, beautiful for others. As we gather in a minute around this table, we'll remember the very cross on which Jesus died that was a brutal instrument of pain and death and humiliation has become our salvation. Somehow God has transfigured that thing to be for us and for others, for this world. The place where God was working and continues to work. This was an instrument used to make room for us, to bring us, remember, into the spaciousness and abundance of God's life. That's what salvation means, is, is wide open fields of God's life together, in and through Jesus. The Spirit does this. The Spirit breathes life and breath into dry bones and reignites these cold fires, and this is something we can count on. This is what we hope for. This is what we work backwards from. So I'm going to close with an invitation that John the Revelator gives. He says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty say, come.
Let the one who wishes receive life-giving water as a gift. You all pray with me. Lord, you've given us the end. Lord, be our end, our goal. Um, Be our way to that goal, too. You're the way, the truth, and the life. Let us walk with you. Lord, we come to you trying to hear. We come to you thirsty. We come to you wishing for life-giving water. Um, We thank you for your gifts that you so lavish on us. Help us share those gifts with others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.